invited to Rebecca to come, and she's going to read our passage for this morning, and uh, that is going to be John chapter uh, 16, beginning at verse 5 through verse 15. So let me encourage you to stand, and um, we will read this together and uh, study God's Word. So John chapter 16, beginning at verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because a ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Yesterday, my son Adam and I were um, driving down the road, and we were talking about um, weapons and metal and, uh, you know, the kind of things that, you know, guys talk about, right? But we were talking about this, the, the history of warfare as it relates to the technology of metal and uh, how things changed through the years and the how, how nations who were strong because they had certain um, weaponry, uh, as these metals were discovered, they were either overrun by other uh, nations or tribes that had different kinds of metal. Of course, we we, we see the progress, obviously, from things like gold, uh, which would not be that great as a tool for weapon because it's so soft. But then you have copper, um, you ultimately have bronze, you have iron, and then you have steel. And just each, each step of the way, the, the strength of the metal um, got stronger and stronger and was used to defeat uh, other, uh, other nations and other armies. And it just got me thinking a little bit, what would history have been like if those metals had not been discovered, um, or if um, those metals didn't exist, or certain ones of them didn't exist. It would have changed, really, the scope of history. It would have changed how history would unfold. And it also got me thinking, what would life be like without some very important practical things that we commonly experience? Um, Imagine a world without screens. Now, in our family, that means TV, that means iPod, iPad, it means computers, it means movies. Can you imagine a world where there were no screens? Now, there's a positive side to that. No more Barney, okay? Um, you know, the things like that would be, be helpful. Right? Uh, no, more, uh, no more NCIS, if that's one of your favorites. No more couch potatoes. Yeah, I know. It's really, really rough, right? Now, imagine, here's another one. Imagine a world where there were no 
fast food restaurants. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, no Ronald McDonald, you know, no Burger King, no Taco Bell. Oh, I mean, you know, life is, would just be awful, wouldn't it, right? I mean, I, when I was in Buffalo, I knew a guy, and, and um, I was a youth pastor, and, and he would give directions based on fast food restaurants. You know, you go down to the McDonald's, and you turn left, and you get down, you'll see a Burger King, you turn right there, you'll see, you know, a Taco Bell, you turn left there, and he didn't know the names of the streets, you just, you know where all the fast food restaurants are, and you're asking yourself, hmm, okay, I wonder what he does with his time, all right. What about if there were no pigs? No, no bacon? I mean, what would you put on your salad, for crying out loud, right? Right? Absolutely, yeah, no pork chops, right? No, no ham. What would you do at Thanksgiving if you don't like turkey? I mean, you're kind of stuck, right? Here's one. No Super Bowl. You got to think through that one a little bit, right? If there's no pigs, you can't have a Super Bowl, right? It just, it's, heads are just turning, right? Just trying to figure that one out, right? All right? Pigskin, football, all right? Just... Oh, yeah, oh, very good, right? All right, what about no money? No money? We would be bartering. We would be uh, trading things with one another. You wouldn't be able to go to the mall and cha-ching. I mean, you'd go to the mall with your goat or chickens, right, and say, you know, give me that shirt for whatever it might be. Now, there was a time when a lot of things didn't exist, right? Was there a time when there was no screens? Believe it or not, okay? Young people, believe it or not, there was a time, all right? Um, I don't know there was a time, but there weren't any pigs. Um, they were probably around. But the thing is, life would be different if you pulled those things out of our history and our culture. Now, what would life be like without the Holy Spirit? Would it be any different than what you're experiencing today? Would you even notice how would you be able to detect that he was not present? Now, I honestly think that we would have difficulty with this one. And part of that is because so often we have a kind of distorted understanding of who the Spirit, Holy Spirit is and what he does and how he accomplishes what he does. Now, for many, we, we do have a grasp, but there is certainly this kind of fuzziness out there. And Jesus has already introduced the, the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit to his disciples in John chapter 14. And if you remember then, we looked at that passage and we, we saw there that the Holy Spirit was a gift they were going to receive. He was a gain that they would experience, a gain in the sense that he would teach, he would be their advocate, he would be the one who comes and lives in them. He, he's also the grace that they would need. They don't deserve the present ministry of the Holy Spirit, but they, they certainly were going to be blessed by him. But what does that look like? And, and if God in his wisdom, divine wisdom, came into our context here and pulled the Holy Spirit away, what would the implication of that be on our lives? I mean, you see, we're not, we're not automatically saying, oh, you know, there'd be no bacon, there'd be no football. We're, we're, we're still in our minds thinking, okay, what would that look like? So this morning, I want us to, to ponder that question as we go through this passage and understand the importance of, of the fact that Jesus is teaching his disciples about the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so having talked with his disciples about the importance of abiding in him, that would be in his life, 
in his love and in his legacy where, where there would be hatred and persecution, and that was what was in store for them, Jesus now draws their attention once again to the Holy Spirit and his coming, and he wants to tell them more about his coming. And in so doing, our understanding of the Holy Spirit will continue to be formed and will continue to be rounded out, so to speak, as Jesus once again counsels his disciples. So look, if you would, please, at verse 5. Look at verse 5. But now I am coming to, to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, there's a few words that we need to look at here to kind of understand the context. He says, I am going. And let's just remember, this is the night before his arrest and ultimate trial and crucifixion. He is going to be leaving his disciples. And throughout this conversation in the upper room, he's saying, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. Now, he says here, I'm going, and no one is asking me where you're going. You might be saying to yourself, well, wait a second, didn't Peter ask him? And didn't Titus somewhat allude to that? Look at John chapter 13 and verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Like, wait a second, how can Jesus say, no one's asked me where I'm going? And then Peter earlier said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And of course, we know that Peter didn't quite comprehend all of that. John chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. But the, the impact of what Jesus is saying here is, I've told you that I'm going, but you have not really been so concerned about the destination. You're more concerned about how it's going to affect you. And that's why you are sorrowful. You're only looking at yourself. You're only looking at, at, at your struggle. You're only looking at the trial that you're going to be going through, and you're really not thinking about the destination where I'm going. But he says, I am going. Now, he also says these things. Well, what things is he talking about? Let's look at that passage again. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where are you going, but because I have said these things to you, and he's talking there about all the things he's been talking about in the upper room. What kind of things is that? That he is going, that someone would betray him, that the disciples are his friends, that the disciples would experience hatred and persecution that would ultimately result in excommunication and death of many of them. So Jesus is saying, while I have been with you, I have been the brunt of the hatred, of the persecution. But I'm going. And if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. But with my going, <laughs> you are now going to bear the brunt of that hatred and persecution. So those are part of the, these things that he's talking about. And as he's sharing those things, the disciples, understandably, are sorrowful. They're filled with sorrow. Their hearts are filled with sorrow. And so... To that instruction and counsel, the disciples are discouraged. Sorrow has filled their heart. Now notice, a little later on, after the, our passage today, and we'll look at this next week, um, John chapter 16, verses 20 and following. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is given birth, she has sorrow because her heart has uh, her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your heart hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. 
And so Jesus says, I know this is hard. I know this is sorrowful, but I'm, I'm trying to encourage you. And I want you to know something, that in my going, someone is coming. And that coming is the person of the Holy Spirit. He is the helper. He is the one that is coming. So maybe to put it this way, in the, in the context of sorrow, Jesus reveals to his disciples the significance of the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now just imagine, here you are in the upper room with Jesus. You spent three years with him. You, you've gone through all sorts of ministry endeavors. You've seen him at work. You've seen the miracles he's performed. You've listened to his teaching. You've actually gone out into the villages and places, and you've done incredible things that, that you did not understand exactly how they're happening except that you're being obedient and you're coming back and you're interacting with Jesus and for three years all this stuff is taking place and the 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 Messiah that you were beginning to understand would come that you thought was going to be this political ruler is going to be going and he's saying I'm going to die that would shock your system and so Jesus comes and and ministers and and talks now about the significance of the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit and he's going to reveal three things. Uh, first of all, um, that his ministry is advantageous. These are the blanks if you want them. His ministry is evangelistic. And his ministry is Christocentric. Okay? His ministry is advantageous. That would be the ministry of the Holy Spirit is advantageous. His ministry is evangelistic. And he gives some specific things that the Holy Spirit is going to do in that context. And that his ministry is Christocentric. So let's just pause for a moment right now and ask God to give us, um, just to give us insight and, and, and humility and hearts to, to, to hear and to, to be taught. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I, I certainly am not the one, Lord, who wants to be heard this morning. I desire that you would speak through your messenger, and Lord, that your truth and your word, uh, Lord, would be revealed, um, unveiled, um, presented, and, and pushed and, uh, Lord, that your Holy Spirit then would, would take that and it would, Lord, affect the hearts of those who are here. Lord, for those who are believers, that our hearts would be strengthened and built up. And, Lord, that we would grow in our understanding of, of who you are and, in particular, your Holy Spirit. For those who may not know you or those who are pretending or those who are uh, struggling with their understanding of their, their, their faith, Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction and comfort and forgiveness, Lord, as, uh, as your gospel goes forward. So, Lord, just allow this time, Lord, to be a time where we can truly be strengthened and, and uh, Lord, that you can have, uh, you can just accomplish your will, Lord, through this time. We ask in your name. Amen. So his ministry, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, first of all, advantageous. Let's look at verse 7 to begin with here. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I've heard people in conversation lament or reflect uh, sentimentally, you know, wouldn't it have been great to, to be around when Jesus was doing ministry, just to see him perform the miracle, to, to hear him speak? To be a part of, of that crowd that listened to him give those talks. Now, let me be honest with you. If you think about all those people that listened to Jesus Christ, what happened to most of them? 
they did not believe, okay? But for some reason, our sentimental selves thinks that being in the physical presence of Jesus is somehow more spiritual. Little pause. That's why when people go to visit the Holy Land, they have a tendency to make it a spiritual experience because I'm, I'm walking in the same place where Jesus walked, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. In fact, I would encourage you to go, but be careful that you're not thinking that that is somehow more spiritual. Okay? And Jesus with this passage and what he teaches here, corrects this sentimental attitude. And he begins by saying, I want to tell you the truth. Now just think about this. If the one who is truth is telling you that he is telling you the truth, you can be sure that it is a truth that is worth listening to, right? So when Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth, boop, big ears, listen up. Listen to what he says. It is to your advantage that I go away. That's what he says to the disciples. I'm going, and I know you're sorrowful, but it is to your advantage. Literally, it is for your good. It is to your benefit. It is to help you. It is to um, accomplish what the divine plan needs to accomplish. Now, those are not necessarily words that we like to hear. It is for your good, right? That's what, you know, children hear from their parents, right? You know, son, go do this. Go wash the car. Why, Dad? It's, it's for your good, right? Bill's character. I remember in college, they had all these strange rules, and I went to kind of a really conservative Christian college, had a great time, enjoyed it, but there were some rules they had that were just kind of really, really weird, and when you kind of asked about them, I mean, things like, you know, having to wear a jacket and tie to dinner every day. I mean, why? Well, or here's another one. Uh, um, you, you can't wear jeans on a certain part of the campus. Okay. Now, I know what they were trying to do. They wanted to make sure that things look good in that area. Okay. The lights have to go out at 11 o'clock. I, I get that. And, and whenever you would ask questions about those particular rules, here's what the answer would be. It builds character and it's for your good. Right? It's kind of like the default. You know, I don't have another answer for you, so it builds character. Do it right? It's for your good. Do it. That's not what Jesus is saying. He really means that this is advantageous for them. There is something beneficial about him going and the Holy Spirit coming. So what he's saying is not some empty encouragement, but a statement of significant truth. And so uh, to, to minister to his disciples who are struggling with sorrow, this is what he says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So this is, this is what we have to wrestle with. Is it better to have Jesus or is it better to have the Holy Spirit? <laughs> you say, oh, that's a trick question. Well, according to Jesus, what is more advantageous? To have him or to have the Holy Spirit? See, it's hard for us to think that Jesus is somehow removing himself from being present. Because we think that's a diminishing of who Jesus is and his role and function in the whole plan of redemption. But that was what Jesus knew needed to take place. So it's not that, it's, it's not that um, the issue here is not so much about spatial presence, Jesus physically being present. The issue here is about divine, uh, a divine eschatological, or you might want to say redemptive plan. Jesus 
needs to be removed so the Holy Spirit can come. It's not that the Holy Spirit is better than Jesus, but that the divine purpose and plan cannot move forward, cannot continue on without Jesus going away. Now, what does it mean for Jesus to go away? It's just not kind of like, well, okay, see you guys, I'm leaving. No, when Jesus is going away, he is going away to be arrested, to be taken and put on trial, and ultimately to be crucified, and then to be buried, and then to rise again, and then to ascend to the right hand of the Father. That's all his going away. So Jesus ultimately has to go to a cross, and as he goes through that cross, he is making way for the next part of the redemptive plan, and that is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, you've got to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. They are having a hard time comprehending this. Right? Jews did not think that the Messiah would come to die. That was foreign to their thinking. They thought the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to stomp on the scene, and he was going to change everything politically. And Jesus has challenged his disciples along the way, and they began to understand, ah, you, mu- you are the Christ. I mean, Peter declared that. But they didn't understand that he was the Christ that was coming in a particular way. So they were growing in that. Okay? So this is an issue of the chronological redemptive plan. Now we can think of it this way. The wisdom of the, God, of the Godhead in the eternity past determined the need for Yahweh. In the Old Testament, you typically see Yahweh um, on display and the, and the idea there is that God is near us, he's kind of with us, spatially in the, the tabernacle, in the temple. But then we have, secondly, Emmanuel, God with us, but now in the flesh. And then as Jesus goes away, there's the need for the helper, who is God always with us. Okay? I mean, just, just think of some of the progression that's going on there. Okay? So it is, friends, to our advantage that Jesus goes away with the, from the disciples because with his going away, now comes the Holy Spirit. So we must rethink our dependence and longing for the physical Jesus. It is Jesus who is asking the Father to send the Holy Spirit, and Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is coming, and it is for are good, and it is advantageous in particular to the disciples. Now, the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost speaks about this. So turn to the book of Acts, please, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Just really kind of laying a foundation here as to why the Holy Spirit is coming. And Jesus is laying this foundation for his disciples. My going away is not a bad thing. It may be difficult, but it is important. It is necessary for the next stage of God's unfolding plan. Now here's Peter, one of the disciples, now an apostle. Um, Acts chapter 2, look at verse 23. We're not going to read the whole sermon, but he says this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now jump down to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And that was all these people that were 
speaking in tongues and the Holy Spirit was being poured out on them. So here we see the divine plan. Jesus crucified, Jesus resurrected, Jesus glorified, and the coming of the promised Holy Spirit. Okay? This is the transaction that's taking place. This is the change. This is the I'm going away, the Holy Spirit is coming dynamic. So how is the Holy Spirit advantageous to us? Let's just think just three ways, real quick, real simple. The Holy Spirit is advantageous to us in that he is like Jesus. He's another helper like Jesus. That's the, the word that is used. I'm sending you the comforter who is like me. John chapter 14, we kind of exp- dug into that. All right, There's alos and there's heteros. And, and you take one of those words, one means another that is like me or similar to me, another one that is completely different. Okay? And here the, the, the helper, the comforter, is very much like Jesus. So Jesus may be going away, but the Holy Spirit is coming in the same attitudes, the same beliefs, the same passion, the same, the same character is there in Jesus as it is in the Holy Spirit. Okay? They are consistent. He's like Jesus. All right? Secondly, why is the Holy Spirit advantageous? Because he is unlike Jesus. All right? What is different? from the Holy Spirit and Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh, and by virtue of his flesh, he is limited and bound by that flesh. The Holy Spirit is, by virtue of his title, a spirit, and he is everywhere. He is living in the hearts of all those who are his believers. Okay? He is also advantageous because he is our helper. He is our advocate. And we're going to find, as we go through this passage more, more reasons as to why he is advantageous in the things that he is doing. But to begin with, we can say it's because he's like Jesus, but he's also unlike him, but in a sense more beneficial. I mean, there is a reality that Jesus can be everywhere and is omnipresent in that sense, but it's the Holy Spirit that lives in everyone who is is a believer everywhere. So today, all across the world, people are gathering to worship. And the Holy Spirit resides in all of them. Okay? So, it is to their advantage because it's part of the divine plan and it ultimately is going to be fleshed out through them. So, secondly, his ministry then is also evangelistic. His ministry is evangelistic. What Jesus reveals here is that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will have this ongoing evangelistic ministry that will be fleshed out in three ways. And we're going to find the first way Um, in chapter 15 and verses 26 and 27. And I I just want you to notice the expressions as we go through these. Um, We're we're told here what the Holy Spirit will do. It says he will do these things. He will do these things. He will do these things. So what's the first one? He will bear witness, and I'm using the word testify, okay? He will testify, all right? This expression, bear witness or testify, is a favorite word of uh, John in Um, in this gospel. Now notice how this gospel begins. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I know it talks about in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God uh, and the Word was with God, but go, if you would please, to verse 6. Here we are introduced to John the Baptist who who is a witness, who is a one bearing witness, who testifies of Jesus. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all, men, all might believe through him. Now, he does this by proclaiming that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
So John the Baptist is coming, and he's coming preaching, and he's preaching a message, and in that message he's saying Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Lamb. He is the one who is the Messiah. That is what he is proclaiming. That is what he is testifying to. Okay? That's how this gospel begins. It was his divine purpose, John the Baptist's divine purpose to testify that Jesus is the Son of God. Chapter 1, verse 34. Now, in our present text, it's the Holy Spirit that will testify. He will. This is what he will do in the future. This is what his role is going to be. This is what his purpose is going to be. This is what his ministry is going to be. He will testify. He will bear witness about Jesus. He will, he will press into the hearts of those who are listening uh, truths about who Jesus is. He will proclaim Jesus. That's why it says in verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He will testify about me. But notice also then in verse 27 that this testifying not only will be from the Holy Spirit, it will also be from the disciples. Verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So we start out in John's gospel here with John the Baptist bearing witness, testifying. As we go through, we see, okay, now it is the Holy Spirit who's testifying, all right? And by the way, we could go back to chapter, I think it's 10, and talk about how the scriptures testified and how the prophets testified and how the Father's testifying. But here we have the Holy Spirit testifying and then ultimately to the disciples, but you are also gonna testify. This is what your role and function is going to be, all right? And so let's go to the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter one. You know where I'm going if you know what's in Acts chapter one and verse eight. Here's Jesus resurrected Jesus, who's now giving some lasting instructions to his disciples, who would be the the apostles. And he says, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. So this is the evangelistic preaching that takes place in the early church and continues to this day. It declares that Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, that he came to die as the sacrifice once for all, that he would be resurrected from the grave, that he would ascend to heaven, that only through believing in his gospel will men be saved from God's wrath. Now, here's one account from the book of Acts where the apostles have been put in prison, but with the help of the angel of the Lord, uh, they break out of prison, they assemble in the temple, and the guards see them, tentatively bring them now to uh, the council, which would be the Sanhedrin. Let's pick it up in verse 27 of chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So what were they doing? Teaching, proclaiming, right? They're bearing witness. That's what they're doing, right? But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The Holy Spirit here is testifying, but the Holy Spirit is testifying how? 
through the apostles. As they proclaim the truth about who Jesus is. As they proclaim, in particular, the Old Testament. And connecting the Old Testament principles and truths about who Jesus is. Now this is how also John's gospel ends. Turn to the last chapter of John's gospel. And I want you to notice what John says about himself. Now remember, John doesn't specifically talk about himself. He kind of uses a, 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 a statement, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved to talk about himself, okay? And so here we have John the, uh, John the Apostle who is writing this gospel who says this in verse 24. This is the disciple, talking about himself, who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So this is long after the early events of what took place in the Gospel of Acts. John is reflecting as he's writing this Gospel and he's thinking about all this bearing of testimony that's taking place and he's finally at the end of it saying, you know what, this disciple who is giving this witness, that's what the Gospel was, right? So witness about the life and the events and the truths about who Jesus is and why he came and what that means. So the Holy Spirit then has an evangelistic ministry of testifying or bearing witness about Christ. He does that in a variety of different ways, but in particular he does it through the apostles. And we will see he'll also do that through his word, but we'll get to that in just a minute. The second way um, that the Holy Spirit is functioning evangelistically is found now in chapter 16, and we'll pick it up at Verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, what does it mean to convict? Now, in my studies, what I understood as I read a number of the commentaries and the, 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 um, the, the Greek dictionaries and stuff, was that the, the, the English words that are used to describe the Greek word, the Greek word there is elencho, E-L-E-N-C-H-O. Um, the, the, the English words really fall short of the full-blown meaning of what that word is talking about. So the words that are used to translate there are uh, words like to expose, um, which, which is true but is not a complete truth. Um, is to convict, which is true but not a complete truth, but it's also to convince. Those are the ways the, the words are used to describe this. But, but maybe a, uh, the, 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 the essence, the sense of what's going on with this word is this. It has the idea <clears throat> of showing someone his sin and calling him to repentance. So it's not just exposing their sin, but it's exposing their sin and calling them to repentance. It's not just convicting them of their sin, but it's also you know, drawing them to a place where they are going to repent of their sin, all right? So that all these, these three words are at work, are at play. <clears throat> but think of it this way. The world is guilty of its sin. It's guilty um, of its righteousness, its self-righteousness. What it believes is righteous. It is guilty of its judgment and what it views judgment as. And so the, the Holy Spirit, in bearing testimony concerning Jesus is also at work exposing, convincing, shaming, convicting the world that its perception of sin, righteousness, and judgment is at odds with God. 
Now let's just think through each of those statements and um, the implications of that. The Holy Spirit convicts the world, first of all, of its sin. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit is at work in the hearts of unbelievers, drawing their attention to the fact that they are guilty before God. In particular, it's their sin of unbelief. It's the sin of unbelief that will ultimately keep you from God. It's not alcohol. It's not adultery. It's not drugs. It's the sin of unbelief, right? Now, if if we would be as passionate about exposing the sin of unbelief as being the scandalous sin, your unbelief is what's keeping you from God. It's, It's not the fact that you're smoking a cigarette or you're drinking or whatever it might be, that you've killed people. It's your unbelief that keeps you from God. And we see the ministry of conviction of sin clearly in Acts chapter 2. As Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And listen to what it says, Acts chapter 2, verses 36 and 37. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, uh, made him, talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ, This Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And there's kind of like the picture of this conviction, being cut to the heart. You've been exposed. You see your sinfulness. But there's also a desire to do something that would honor God with that reality. Now, you probably know people that say, hey, you know, I know I'm a sinner, and I'm fine being a sinner. It's not an issue of whether they need to be exposed about their sin. They know it. They just don't want to do anything about it. So this idea here of convicting the world of their sin is is exposing their sin, but it's also pushing them to the place where they will repent of their sin. Now, what is important for us to realize is that the source of conviction was not Peter. Okay? He may have preached with power. He may have been eloquent. He may have used persuasive words. He may have used convincing gestures. Now, friends, in our present day culture, there is far too much emphasis on the preacher and that preacher's personality. You know, if you're going to have a, an effective church, you have to have a gifted, and it's not even pastor, the word is communicator. Now, what does that mean? In the South, it means that he can preach the word of God with power and conviction. All of you right now say, I'm convicted, I'm convicted, right? Friends, that isn't what brings conviction. And Peter may have stood up there and, 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 and preached about Jesus Christ to all that congregation, but it wasn't Peter that was convicting. Understand this, if Peter had preached this message the day before, no one would have responded. He could have preached exactly the same way. No one would have responded. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had not been poured out yet. It was the Holy Spirit that came with the preaching of Peter that brought conviction. It's the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit with the message of the truth and the the bearing witness of Jesus was cutting to the heart of these people 
And they were coming to the place where they were saying, what shall we do? It's the Holy Spirit that convicts the world of sin. Peter didn't convict the people of their sin. Hear this. We don't convict people of their sin. Which then puts a nuance on how we minister the word of God, right? Now, I know you want to convince people of a truth. You want to persuade people. But listen, you cannot, hear this, you cannot manipulate someone into heaven. You cannot manipulate a conversion experience. It is the Holy Spirit at work through the faithful testimony of who Jesus is that is revealed to us in the word of God that brings conviction. There's no salvation, however, There's no regeneration, there's no new birth without the conviction that comes by the Holy Spirit. Left to ourselves, we wouldn't have a clue that we're sinful and living in rebellion against God. Scripture tells us we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Last time I went up to some dead animal, it was dead. Didn't speak to me, didn't talk to me. That's the picture he's talking about here. We're also by nature children of wrath. Our very nature is that we are Fighting against God. We want nothing to do with him. This is all in Ephesians 2. We are dark in our understanding, excluding, uh, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance in us, because of the hardness of our hearts. That's Ephesians 4. This is the condition of man without God. He doesn't have a clue. He doesn't want to have a clue. He's helpless. He's hopeless. Oh, he might feel religious, but he's blind. Unless... The Holy Spirit comes and convicts him of his sinfulness. Well, how does he do that? He does that through proclaiming who Jesus is. Well, how does that proclaiming of who Jesus is take place? It takes place through the word of God that is proclaimed from believer to other people. It comes from reading the word of God. It's the Holy Spirit that works through that. So man is helpless and hopeless, and and we're unable to believe the truth. In fact, we, according to Romans 1.18, are guilty of suppressing the truth. So we need the Holy Spirit to graciously expose and convict us of our sinfulness. And if if we are God's children right now, we've experienced this. You may remember, as as an unbeliever, what it was like to be under this, this convicting power. And in particular, if you were, if you came to know the Lord, you know, at a, at a maybe, you know, in your teens or as an adult, you, you, you remember that maybe the battle that you went through and the struggle with your sin and that place where you just couldn't get away from it and you knew that there was something supernatural going on. And that was the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit on your heart. Secondly, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. Verse 10 Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, at face value, like, what what is he talking about there? What What does he mean? Well, let's just kind of work through this. The world doesn't know that all their righteousness is as dirty, filthy rags. The world doesn't recognize its true condition. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. Paul says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the condition of the unbelieving world. And it is only through the Holy Spirit that the world can be confronted with the failure of their own self-righteousness. Their own self-imposed, understood righteousness. And Jesus here is saying, listen, the world thinks that it is righteous, but it is not. So why does he say, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer? What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that he is going, right? He's going away. What does he have to do in going away? He has to go through the cross. And in order for him to go through the cross, he has to be, and get this, he has to be, just like the, the, the book of Ephesians reveal, or book of Hebrews reveals for us, he has to be the perfect son that meets all the requirements necessary to stand before the Father. He has to be the perfect sacrifice once for all that meets all the requirements necessary to be that sacrifice. And he has to be the perfect Savior. In other words, Jesus, having gone through the cross into the grave, being, uh, rising again, ascending to the, to the Father, is now in the place where he has proved himself to be the only righteousness that will solve any man's problem. The world's righteousness is self-righteousness. It's their thinking of what righteousness looks like. And Jesus says, your righteousness falls short. It is filthy. It is dirty. There's only one solution, and that is Christ. And that is why those who have embraced Christ as their Lord and Savior, we're told, are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. There is what we call an alien righteousness, meaning it's not your righteousness, but it's Jesus' righteousness now that is placed on you. See, you didn't do anything to merit standing before God and say, look at me. I'm so good. I'm so righteous. No, you're not. You're sinful, you're wicked, and you're deserving of eternity in hell. But God's grace has been showered on you that by virtue of you believing in Jesus Christ, the Father has granted you the righteousness of Christ. You're covered by his righteousness. And therefore, when we say that we are in Christ, that means we're protected by what he has accomplished on the cross. And that has been imputed to us as righteousness. That has been put on our account as righteousness. So this righteousness now is being confronted by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is being revealed as man's only solution. He is the righteousness that we ultimately need. His perfection covers our perfect, imperfection. His righteousness covers our sin. The Holy Spirit also convicts the world of judgment. Now think about this. It says in verse 11, concerning judgment because the rule of this world is judged. The world ultimately is incapable of judging righteously. But it is, the only, it is only the Holy Spirit that always judges righteously. Now listen, I, I know there's a lot of good people out there we put in the category of good who make good moral decisions. We trust our, our, our government and our structure. We, we would hope that judges would be in places and that their judgment would be sound and be according to the 
the rule of law, but isn't it possible that the rule of law would contradict God's law? And isn't it true that even a good judge is a sinful judge that can be swayed by a nuance of influence or someone he knows or maybe a political agenda he has? The world's judgments fall short, in fact, go against the grain of God's judgment. It is only the Holy Spirit who judges righteously. I often hear people joke, whether it's in person or on TV or maybe even radio, about ultimately going to hell when they die because that's where all their friends are going to be. That's their judgment. That's their assessment. That's what the future looks like. But it is a false judgment. It is a misplaced judgment of what the reality is. And so Jesus says, the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, the, the, the one who is, you might want to say, in charge of the world, who is Satan, he will be judged. And if the ruler of the world is going to be judged, then certainly all the followers of the ruler of the world are also going to be judged in like manner. And although Satan is already judged, the final sentence against him will not take place until the end of the millennium. And here's what it says, Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Friends, there is no escaping standing before the Lord in judgment. If you think you're going to go to hell and you're going to hang out with all your buddies, you have a complete distorted view of hell and judgment. And praise the Lord. It is to our advantage that the Holy Spirit comes and convicts the world of its view of judgment. Having a healthy and a right view of judgment is not only healthy for the world, but it's healthy for us. There are only two possible responses to the conviction that the Holy Spirit comes um, to judge, and that is repentance or rejection. Those who reject Christ They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's what 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 says. Those who repent will spend eternity with Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit presses that down. You know, there there are people who say, you actually believe in judgment? (laughs) Yeah, I do. What's sad is that you don't. And it's it's only the Holy Spirit Get this, it's only the Holy Spirit in his evangelistic ministry that convinces people otherwise. Convinces in such a way that they are convicted of this sin, because these are all sins, and that responds then, or in them, this attitude of repentance. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, number two. Convicts. The third one here. Um, as far as his evangelistic ministry is, this, this word guiding. I still have many things to say to you, Jesus says, but you cannot bear them now. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that there's a lot for the disciples still yet to know and to learn, but Jesus hasn't taught them to it yet, right? He hasn't given that information. He hasn't downloaded that. It's not like, you know, here's your, you know, here's your um, 
flash drive, you know, stick it in me, you can read it later. He, he has taught them a lot of things, but there's still more that they have yet to learn. And in the next few days, months, and years, the Holy Spirit will, will begin and will continue to direct them and to teach them. But the guiding that is being talked about here is not some mystical, sentimental, or subjective ongoing communication with the Holy Spirit as if it's like, you know, I'm driving down the road. It's like, Holy Spirit, do I, am I supposed to turn left here or am I supposed to turn right? Oh, it's, it's left. Okay, I'll turn left here, okay? And somehow the Holy Spirit is some guiding me in that mystical way. That's not what's being talked about here. Now, I do believe that the Holy Spirit at times will, will somehow prompt us and move us in special situ- situations. Be careful with that. But that is not what is being talked about here. And if we just kind of look at it as, a, well, he just kind of guides somehow mystically and spiritually, what ends up happening is we take our Bibles and we say, Pew! and I'm just going to walk through life with the Holy Spirit kind of guiding and moving me, and, you know, it's going to be great. And what happens to people like that is they end up saying, ah, doctrine's not important. The truth of God's word is not important. I'm not even going to read it. I'm just going to rely on the Holy Spirit to get me through life. When it is very, the very word of God That is what the Holy Spirit works through. Now hear this and see this in this particular text. Notice verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all, we're in the ESV here, all what? The truth. Say, what's so big deal? No, didn't say guide you in all truth. He says guide you into all the truth. The article before the word truth here is... It's kind of signifying here, we're not just talking about truth in general. There's a particular truth that's being talked about here. For he will not speak on his own authority, but, will, uh, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. What's going on here? He is identified as the spirit of truth, and he is declaring to the disciples that he will guide them in all the truth. And it is the disciples through their ministry who will, with the Spirit's help, Pen the truth. Ultimately, the truth, the truth that's been talked about here is the formation of the New Testament. Okay? He is going to guide them in this wonderful gift to us called the New Testament. They are the ones who record the truth. This is Jesus' promise that when he leaves, the Holy Spirit would be at work. And he would, through the Holy Spirit, record this New Testament. Two classic passages, um, I think, help us here. 2 Timothy 3.16, it says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The, The expression breathed out is the activity of the Holy Spirit at work recording the New Testament through the pen of various authors. He's, he's breathing out his word. We talk about the inspiration of the Bible. It's not that you know, Paul kind of got up one day in the middle of the night and was like, oh, wow, I, I'm inspired to write something. You know, Let me watch my pen, see what it says. Oh, that's what it says. No, the Holy Spirit was at work through the personality of Paul as he wrote letters to various churches, and he's breathing out through the personality of that particular individual, that apostle, what his word would be. Now, it's just kind of a short, um, you know, there's lot, lots more to say about that subject. But go, if you would, please, now to 2 Peter 1.21. Again, talking about the, the forming of the word of God. And here, the, the, the word that is used is this word prophecy, this proclaiming. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Oh, so man isn't the one who does this. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Ah, we take that and we... 
we kind of put that into 2 Timothy 3.16, see? And that idea of being carried along is like this, these, these sailboats on the, on the bay. You go out to, you know, to, to San Francisco, you go to the, the bridge, whatever. You see all these sailboats out there, and they're moving. The wind is, is, is moving them. That's what was going on here. The Holy Spirit is breathing into what is taking place. He's moving them along. And the result of that, over all, over all the, the years, probably about 50 or so years, the, the New Testament then was, was formed by a variety of writers and by a variety of the apostles. Now, the Holy Spirit would guide in a number of ways. He says, verse 13, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. He would guide them, guide them historically. In other words, he would bring all things to their remembrance. Remember chapter 14, this is what he says. I will, he will guide you. He'll bring all things to your remembrance. Remember, as we've gone through this gospel, how many times Jesus says, listen, you're not going to get it now, but you will. <laughs> you will. When, when, I have, when I've gone, it'll all click. And you're like, ah, now I understand, right? And the Holy Spirit is the one that's going to bring all those things to remembrance. He's going he's to remind them, and he's going to guide them historically. And that's why we have in our New Testament the Gospels, which are four books of historical, accurate documented eyewitness accounts along with the book of Acts which is uh, again written very very carefully to give us a historical record of not only Jesus' work in, in, in the beginning but also the beginning of the church. Then they're going to be guided doctrinally. Jesus said I have much more to say to you. And what happens is that as the Holy Spirit comes the Holy Spirit then begins to guide them and teach them and to explain and to further um, solidify their understanding of certain doctrinal truths. And that's why we have uh, the letters of Paul and Peter and James and John, each adding to and explaining and furthering um, the truth that we found, not only in Jesus, but even in the Old Testament, just the whole redemptive plan. Then we have the, the third one, that would be uh, guiding them prophetically. And, and that, that might mean initially about what's going to happen in the next few days, because he's talking about you know, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and these things are going to happen immediately. But then there's also, I want to say, the book of Revelation, which is far more prophetic in its, in its uh, theological sense, or I might want to say in its formal sense, talking about the future uh, of what is yet to come. As he talks about, he, he still has some things to say to them about the things to come. So this, this ministry of guiding is a ministry that the Holy Spirit has, in particular, specifically, through the disciples who would be the apostles, and, and, and through their lives, they would then pen, and they would form, and they would establish the Word of God. Now, the Holy Spirit's guidance will also be consistent and united with the Godhead, and listen, if you, if you would, as we continue on, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, remember as Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, this is what he said. He said, I always do the will of who? The Father, or of him who sent me. My words are not mine alone. They are the words of the Father, right? He's always going back to the Father. He's always submissive to the Father. It's always in accordance to the Father. Now, listen to what we've just read here. For he, the Holy Spirit, will not speak on what? His own authority. In other words, he's not standing somehow outside. What he says then is going to be united with the rest of the Godhead. It's going to be consistent with what Jesus says. It's going to be consistent with the Father. 
So there's this unity, there's this, there's this consistency that takes place as the Holy Spirit is ministering. So the Holy Spirit's ministry then is advantageous. It's evangelistic in three ways in that, first of all, um, what did I say? My mind's going a blank now. Yeah, he testified, right? Then he convicts, and then he guides, in particular, um, the, the disciples. Now, does the Holy Spirit continue to guide today? Yes. But not with new revelation. He guides through his word. All right? And this is why, have you, you ever been in a circumstance, maybe you're, it's kind of a, a crunch situation, and, and a passage of scripture comes to your mind, and you're just like, I haven't even been dwelling on that. But God just brings it back somehow, some, somehow spiritually to my mind, and it helps me in that particular situation. That's the Holy Spirit at work. Let's look at the last one here. Uh, his ministry is Christocentric, which is another way of saying it's Christ-centered. What is the goal of the Holy Spirit in his ministry, in his testifying, in his evangelism? It is to glorify Jesus. Look at verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, this is one of the problems with ministries that focus so much on the Holy Spirit to the neglect of Jesus, because the Holy Spirit's role and function is to draw everyone's attention to Jesus, who is the Son of God, not to himself, okay? The words of Merrill Tenney, I think, are helpful here. The Holy Spirit would not present an independent message differing from what the disciples had already learned from Christ. They would be led further into the realization of his person and in the development of the principles he had already laid down. They would also be enlightened by about coming events. He would unfold the truth as the disciples grew in spiritual capacity and understanding. So he's just... He's, he's building on what Jesus has already done, but ultimately he is glorifying Jesus as he is carrying out his ministry. Therefore, to glorify Christ means that the goal of the Holy Spirit is to direct people's attention to Christ. He is the one on display. That is, Christ is the one on display. He is the perfect son. He is the perfect savior. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. See, the Holy Spirit isn't jumping on the scene saying, look at me. He's saying, let me tell you about Jesus. <laughs> let me tell you about who he is and, 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 and how, why he's here and why you need him and why you are stuck in your sin, but the hope that is found in him. Now think of it this way. If Jesus is the event of eternity, the lights at the event are shining on him. All the chairs are all focused on the center of the stage because the whole point here is that Jesus would be on display. All the tickets that may go out for this event have his picture on them. Why? Because he is the point. And the Holy Spirit might be out there handing out tickets, ushering people to their seats, turn the lights on. But it's not about him. It's about Jesus. You understand, the Holy Spirit isn't functioning exactly that way, right? It's not just an event. But it's just an illustration to help you understand that he takes a backseat. But his role and function is critically important to glorifying Jesus for his purpose. But also, turn, if you would, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Because there's a personal application. We've been focusing 
a lot more here on you know, the role of the Holy Spirit as it relates to specifically the disciples. And there are implications then for us, but here is one implication here about just the, the fact that, that he is glorifying Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Just get the picture here. What is it that we are confronted with every time we open the page of God's Word? We're confronted with a reality, a picture, a reflection of who Jesus is. And we are being changed by degree every time we come to the Word of God, every time we hear the Word of God preached or taught, every time we open the Word of God ourselves. It's a mirror reflecting back to us righteousness, holiness, perfection, who is Jesus. And therefore, the Holy Spirit work, works through that, and we are changed by degrees as we are spending time uh, in the Word of God. So it's the Holy Spirit that is working through the Word of God to affect change in the life of believers. Now, friends, this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit revealed by Jesus in the upper room in the context of sorrow because he is going to depart. And he's saying to his disciples, listen, my going although it's sorrowful, is advantageous to you. And friends, we must hear that. That means then that the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit for us is advantageous. We are actually better off with Jesus being gone because the Holy Spirit is now with us. That doesn't diminish Jesus at all. What it does is recognizes that there is this divine plan that is taking place. And Godhead is functioning and following through with that divine plan. And so we have the privilege of glorifying Jesus and also having this wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. His ministry is evangelistic. And so when we think about our role and function to also be witnesses, we must think about the Holy Spirit who is at work. Remember, we're not the ones that are doing it. And it, his ministry is also... Um, What did I say? Help me here. Yeah, Christ-centered. We're, we're always thinking about Christ. We're always focusing on Christ. Now, I want to finish up here with, um, um, th there wasn't much to say here as far as that is concerned. I'm sorry. Um, I want to finish up with, with the concluding thoughts, right? Three things. I thought, I, I thought you just gave them to me. Nope. Um, I want to just kind of circle around on a couple of things that I think flow out of this. And there's a lot that flows out of this that I think is worth us discussing in home groups and stuff. But here are three that just kind of build on this. We must have a high view of, and I've thought of three things that, uh, that I think are, are really important for us to focus on, a high and a healthy view, um, first of all, of the proclamation of the gospel. It is the purpose of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ through the revelation, or through revelation, through revealing him, and it is our purpose to glorify Christ through proclamation. It's the Holy Spirit that reveals he has called us to proclaim. We are witnesses. We proclaim the truth because the Holy Spirit has breathed it out. So our, our role and function then is to, is to come to people, neighbors, friends, whoever they are, and to present the truth of the gospel. Right? And our high view of proclaiming the gospel means that as we do that, we are 
trusting that it is the Holy Spirit that is working through that faithfulness to proclaim the gospel and that he is going to accomplish what he desires to accomplish. That affects and changes how we do evangelism. Because you and I cannot convince anyone. We cannot convict anyone. Like I mentioned before, you can scream, you can plead, you can dance before a blind man hoping that he is going to see, but it's only God that will open his eyes. And spiritually speaking, you can dance, you can sing, you can jump, you can be theatrical, but unless the Holy Spirit is working in that person's heart, they will not have spiritual life. Okay? We are responsible to proclaim the gospel. Secondly, we are uh, we must have a high and healthy view, secondly, of the scriptures. Now, why is this important? You say, well, yeah, I know that, Pastor Rob. Here, here is, I want to address this because I think it flows out here. Uh, in recent years, it has been in vogue to focus on the red letters that are in the Gospels as, as if Jesus' words are somehow more profound and more inspired than anything else. Now, what's, what's interesting here, and I do not mean to be sarcastic, I just want to make it very, very plain. The passage that we have been studying, if you have one of those Bibles that has red letters in it, this passage is in what color? It's in red, okay? And Jesus, in red, in this Bible, is giving clear instructions of the foolishness of that kind of thinking. The focus on the red letters in some people's mind, it's somehow give them superiority. But here, Jesus declares that it is the advantage of the Holy Spirit and his ministry that will build on what Jesus has said. So here's the problem. If you limit yourself to the red letters of Jesus, you will have a diminished understanding of what God has called you to. So well, I, I want to I walk where Jesus walked. Well, then go on a trip to Israel. Yeah, I want to, these are Jesus' words, yes, but they are inspired. It is an apostle that recorded the gospel where Jesus spoke, and it's the Holy Spirit that breathed those out. Those words are not more inspired than any other passage of Scripture. And if we think they are, then we have a diminished view of, of um, the Scriptures. We have a low view because then we're saying, okay, the epistles are somehow lower than the red letters in the Gospels. So if we limit ourselves to the red letters, or even to the Gospels, we don't have a full picture, and many will come to wrong conclusions. We have the advantage of the Holy Spirit giving fuller instruction, giving fuller direction, giving fuller clarification in the epistles in particular about the things that Jesus is saying in the Gospels, okay? It's just important for us then to say, you know what? <laughs> this is what God uses. Now you say, it's not the pages, it's not the, it's not the ink, it's not, the, it's not what you can feel here, but it's the breathed out word of truth. Third thing is this, we must have a high and healthy view of the Holy Spirit. And I would just encourage you, we are just scratching the surface, we're just kind of looking at at one passage, which does reveal a lot about the Holy Spirit, there's more to learn, there's more to study, and I would encourage you with the books that I've recommended, Francis Chan's Forgotten God, if you want a little weightier one, um, um, I mentioned that earlier, um, Sinclair Ferguson on the Holy Spirit, um, good resource on him. But just understand, the Holy Spirit is a person, he's not a force. 
You can't, don't confuse the Holy Spirit with, you might want to say, some religious substitutes that are out there. He's not karma. He's not, you know, this, this spirit of the age type thing. No, he is a person of the Godhead. He is a person of the Trinity. And he, right now, if you are a believer, resides in you. And he is the one who convicts you. He is the one that teaches you. He's the one that guides you through and with the word of God. Now, let me ask you a question. What would life be like if the Holy Spirit wasn't here? Would it be different? Would the pages of history be different? Would your life be different? Would your growth in Christ's likeness be different? Better believe it. Thankfully, that's just a hypothetical. <laughs> but that hypothetical is there to help us understand, you know what? Let us understand how the Holy Spirit is at work in us and be thankful that when Jesus left, he left us a comforter, a helper, a counselor, an advocate who was actively at work in our lives, drawing our attention to Jesus Christ as the word of God is proclaimed, taught, revealed, studied, understood. It is the Holy Spirit who is accomplishing that and fulfilling his ministry to give all direction to Jesus Christ. Lord, help us today as we contemplate the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for what that has produced for us, that we now have the privilege of having the word of God in our hands. And Lord, how you have been at work preserving and protecting, Lord, those truths and the, those letters and those gospels through the years and so that when we pick up the word of God that we have today, we can be confident that what we're reading is your truth. And Lord, that it is, it is accurate, that it is clear. Lord, I just thank you that we are blessed because of the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask that as a church that we would not um, just be theoretical in our Christian walk, but Lord, we would be spiritual in our Christian walk and spiritual enough to know that the Holy Spirit is active and alive and working through the word of God, convicting and challenging and molding and shaping us and directing our attention to the perfect Jesus Christ, whom we worship, whom we glorify, who is our life, who's granted us life, who loves us, in whom we live, in whom, Lord, we abide, and for whom we are willing to give our lives. Help us today now, Lord, to take these things and to be strengthened by them in your name, we ask, amen.